everyone, this is Amanda Borshel Dan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. This week, I'm offering you excerpts of a conversation I was honored to host for our Times of Israel communities behind the headlines video series. It was held with Israeli author Yossi Klein Halevi and Palestinian scholar Mohammed Dajani, who became friends after the publication of Klein Halevi's book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. You will hear their full bios shortly in the conversation itself. So let's just get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Times of Israel's Behind the Headlines video interview, which is exclusively for our Times of Israel community. I am joined by two scholars here, Yossi Klein Halevi, the author of many books, including Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, and Professor Mohammed Dajani. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Just briefly, I'm going to read your bios very quickly. Professor Dajani is a Palestinian scholar born in Jerusalem, where he currently lives. He holds two doctorate degrees. In 2007, he established the Wasatia Moderate Islamic Movement, which promotes peace, moderation, reconciliation, coexistence, and interfaith dialogue. He was in the headlines in March 2014 for a trip that he took with 27 Palestinian students to visit the Auschwitz Nazi death camp. As a result of this trip, he received death threats and he was forced to resign from Al-Quds University. Today, he is working with the European Wasatia Graduate School for Peace and Conflict Resolution, an interdisciplinary doctorate program on reconciliation, moderation, conflict resolution, interfaith dialogue, and ethics. Yossi Klein Halevi, in addition to being my boss's good friend, is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem and a non-resident fellow of the Trends think tank in Abu Dhabi. He co-directs the Hartman Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative, which teaches emerging young Muslim American leaders about Judaism, Jewish identity, and Israel. He was born in Brooklyn and received his BA in Jewish Studies, which I also have, from Brooklyn College and his MS in Journalism from Northwestern University. He moved to Israel in 1982 and lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Sarah, who helps direct a center for Jewish meditation, and they have three children. So welcome again, both of you. Now we're here. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. We're here basically in light of this book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, which Yossi, you wrote in 2018, correct? Yeah. Now the fallout to the book is the main reason why we're here. But first of all, explain to me what what were what was the impetus to begin with to sending this letter in a bottle, as your wife calls it, into the Palestinian world. Well, like like most Israelis, uh, after the second intifada of the early two thousands, uh, I was cut off, cut myself off, a combination of both, from my Palestinian neighbors. I had. N- virtually no contact with Palestinians. And I had quite a quite a bit of contact before the Second Intifada. And a combination of anger, fear, frustration. I wanted nothing to do with, with my Palestinian neighbors. And the impetus to, to write this book was after all these years, I was looking for a way to resume that severed connection. And when I think about it now, I realize that I was missing Palestinian friends who I didn't know that I had. I was missing 
Muhammad, for example, even though we didn't know each other then. But I felt within five minutes from where I'm sitting, I, I look out on Palestinian villages. Muhammad lives 10 minutes away from, from where I do. And, and yet different worlds, totally severed. And I felt that, that my responsibility as a writer is to try to help create a language of rec reconciliation. I, I'm not going to make peace. I'm not a politician. I'm not a diplomat. But what I can try to do is create a model of what peace might sound like, what a conversation uh, over sometimes irreconcilable narratives, but a respectful conversation, what that might sound like. And so that was the impetus for writing this book. Now, Mohammed, when did you read the book and how did you feel initially after reading it? Uh, a friend of mine recommended the book for me and uh, and then uh, I, I thought an urge to write a response because uh, I felt it's very significant. Why? Because uh, with the, before Oslo, uh, we were enemies in the sense it was Palestinians and Arabs in one camp and the Israelis in the other camp. After Oslo, it became Palestinians and Israelis for peace or for uh, the sharing the land or for reconciliation against Palestinians Israelis who are extremists who do not want to share the land and do, do not want to have peace or reconciliation with the other. And then what happened is that uh, the extremists won the day and derailed the peace process. And as a result, a big wall was, raised, was built to separate our two people. And for quite some time, all the people-to-people -people activities all the normalization activities, all the peace activities fell apart. And suddenly we are on one side of the wall and they are on the other side of the wall. So I felt like as if somebody is on the other side of the wall, is throwing at us a letter to say, look, we are not enemies. We should not be enemies. Let This is who we are. And uh, let's work together so that we do not let this wall separate us. And we do not let this wall widen the gap between us. And so I felt an urge to respond to that letter because it came by a pigeon that uh, carried the message to me. So I wrote a letter and put it in that pigeon uh, leg and sent it back, thinking that I need to keep the channel of communications on. They want to block us from learning the story of the other, from respecting the narrative of the other, from knowing who, who is the other, what is his culture, what is his literature, where did he come from, why did he come from. Um, and I wanted to tell the other my story, as well as I wanted to hear his story, but also I wanted to tell my story. And that's why I felt that 
in the midst of darkness, in the midst of this tunnel, Yossi's book was very important. Why? Because it broke the walls of uh, lack of of lack of knowledge, um, of ignorance, and tried to tell the Palestinians, look, we are not, uh, you have a stereotype image of us, and you have, you are demonizing us, you are delegitimizing us, but this is not the right way, this is not the right path. So uh, to me, I felt it was important to send back the message to Yossi to tell him, we heard you, we, we share your feelings, we are not here your enemy, and we are not here to throw you in the sea, and we know you are not there to throw us in the desert. And as a result, we need to communicate and to keep, to keep this channel of your communication uh, on. And that's why I felt his book was important. And the fact that many Palestinians like me responded indicates that this image that the Palestinian uh, man or Israeli man in the street do not want peace is not true. And uh, we have to emphasize to make our voices heard. And then this, I think this was a good start. And I'm glad that Yossi reprinted the book in a revised version where he included the uh, letters of the Palestinians. At the same time, I think he did something very significant, which is speaking to us in our own language, Arabic. And this, I think, is very important because most of what is written about peace or peace initiative is in English. And so many, most of the Palestinians do not read that. And so it, was, it is very important for them to be reached out in their language. And I thought that also is very significant. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. Now, part of the goal of the book was to be able to agree to disagree. So, so far in our conversation, we've been way too much agreeing than disagreeing. So I'd like to do a little bit of an experiment and bring forward a few topics that are hot button topics in both of our societies, the Israeli and the Palestinian society, and to hear an Israeli's perspective on this topic and a Palestinian perspective, because we are not representing monolithic truisms for each of our societies, is just individual perspectives. So to begin with, Right now, we're celebrating Ramadan throughout the world, and Ramadan is often celebrated with prayer at Al-Aqsa, or the Temple Mount, as we call it. Now, so many people have their own ideas of what Al-Aqsa, or the Temple Mount, is. Israel is able to legislate or regulate how many people can go up to it. Do you see that as fair, Mohammed? And what does Al-Aqsa mean to you? Well... Al-Aqsa is part of uh, the Islamic uh, way of um, attachment uh, to 
the Abrahamic faith. And so Jerusalem is a city where it is, it should be, and it is, it is an Abrahamic city in the sense that Jews, Christians, and Muslims have attachment to the city. So Al-Aqsa is part of that Islamic attachment to the city. And, uh, and that's where I uh, think of it as a religious holy site. But I'm not for, although not many agree with me, I'm not for closing it in the face of others. As a holy place, it should be an open place where anyone from any religion who would like to pray there, who would like to visit, who would like, it, it should be an open place for them. And I believe that this is where we are not, uh, we are not praying for a stone. We are praying for God. And in this way, the stone does not represent holiness in the sense of its own, but in the sense that it is being a medium to God. And so that's why I don't believe in the holiness of the stone or of the place. I believe in the holiness of uh, being, uh, even wherever you are, you can just connect to God immediately. And so I'm, uh, I'm much more open in that than my fellow Muslims who, who actually uh, feel uh, this propertyship of the place. And I feel it should be an open place for everybody to pray. And here, so you see, uh, the stone that Muhammad is talking about is, of course, the foundation stone, which I was privileged to see in about 2000. But currently, Jewish Israelis are not allowed to see this stone. How do you feel about that? And what is your attachment to the Temple Mount? Well, my attachment is as a religious Jew, wherever I happen to find myself in the world, when it's time to pray, I turn toward the Temple Mount. And that's um, both an instinctive uh, reflex and also a very much of a of a conscious awareness that as a Jew I have a, a religious core I have a, I have there's a place that is the 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 core of uh, of my longing of my longing for for redemption um, that's that's one half of my answer uh, the other half is that I deeply fear that place and I deeply fear the Jewish passion for the Temple Mount. Uh, if there is any place that can provoke a, um, a religious war in this country, uh, it's the Temple Mount. And so I, I am a, a deep believer in in exercising restraint, in separating our religious attachment to that particular place from finding a concrete political expression. You know, the Zionist movement uh, assumed for itself many of the tasks that Jews traditionally believed the Messiah would do, returning us to the land in in gathering the exiles, uh, there's one there's one job that I think we need to leave for the Messiah, 
and that's the Temple Mount. Uh, Islam has established its presence over the last uh, 1,300 years on the Mount, and whether Jews feel that it's not fair uh, that, uh, that we have lost our most sacred place, the reality is that we have, at least in this unredeemed world. What happens when the world is redeemed, as, as we say in the Middle East, Elohim Gadol, God is great, and I leave that to God and the Messiah. Um, there's, um, you know, there's, a, there's a really interesting moment that has been glossed over a little too quickly uh, by, uh, by many Israelis, especially in the national religious camp. And that is on the morning of June 7th, 1967, when the paratroopers broke through the Lion's Gate and came to the Temple Mount, rather than organize prayers on the Mount, which you would think they might have been tempted to do, this after all is our holiest place, they went down to the wall, literally and figuratively went down, down in holiness. They went down to the wall. The wall has no intrinsic holiness. And yet the, the impulse of all the paratroopers, including religious paratroopers, including some of those who later on would become leaders of the settlement movement, Hanan Porat uh, and others who were there that morning, went, abandoned the Temple Mount and went down to the wall. And it's, very, it's a very touching moment because what I think they were really saying was, this is the moment where we need to honor 2,000 years of Jewish prayer. And those prayers happened for 2,000 years at the wall. They weren't happening up here on the Temple Mount. And, and so the paratroopers intuitively forfeited their 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 presence uh, on the mount, and uh, and reestablish the Jewish presence at the wall, and uh, that seems to me a a a moment of both um, wisdom and generosity, whether it was intended that way or not. Uh, there's one more story that's related to the paratroopers in '67. Which is uh, two of the two of the paratroopers uh, again on that morning of June seventh, uh, climbed up to the top of uh, of the Dome of the Rock, and fastened an Israeli flag to where the crescent is, the 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 crescent moon. And Moshe Dayan, the defense minister, was standing on the mount on Mount Scopus and watching this through binoculars and immediately instructed the commander of the paratroopers, Matagur, to take the flag down. And so what you have at that moment of victory is an expression of, of wisdom, restraint, that I think really needs to continue to be the, uh, the guide for how we, the, the Israelis, relate to that place. Now, another wall that also represents restraint, at least, is, of course, the security barrier, which for many Israelis is considered a salvation during the Second Intifada. It clearly reduced the number of uh, 
terrorist bombings that were occurring throughout the country. But I would imagine that for Palestinians, it is hardly representing salvation. Mohammed, how do you view the security barrier? I think that, uh, you know, Israelis call it security barrier. People call it to separation wall. Other people call it apartheid wall. Other people call it uh, enmity wall. Whatever you want to call it, it's not important. But what is important is that it separates us physically. And I think this physical separation fails to make us feel the human bondage that we should feel. And that's where I believe that there, yeah, and there uh, I'm for building bridges, not walls. And also to have, to, to be able, I heard what Yossi was talking now. When he is talking, I felt he was so much entrenched in the past. And um, I feel that we need to move on from the past to the future in the sense that what how people feel uh, is very important, but also it is important for them to understand how others feel. And I felt the uh, deep uh, emotional attachment of Yossi to the place, but also there are Christian attachment to Jerusalem or Muslim attachment to Jerusalem that needs to be respected. And I believe that it was such wisdom that the founding fathers of Israel had in the sense that they did not want to awake the Islamic tiger. And in this way, they, did, they saw that enmity is not in victory, military victory, uh, that success is not in military victory, but victory is in the human victory. And this is where, as a Muslim, I feel very proud that when the Caliph Omar ibn al-Khattab was able to uh, conquer Jerusalem, that there was no blood there, that he allowed the Christians to stay and to thrive and allowed the Jews to come back. And so this is my model. My model is a model of an Abrahamic vision. My model is a futuristic model of us all together feeling the same compassion that we feel in order for us to be able to uh, reconcile and to survive together, coexist together, and the place will accommodate the three of us, whether Muslim or Christian or Jew. And that's where I believe to take this passion and put it in the engine of peace in order that we do not have to worry about the fear that Yossi is talking about. I'm not worried, I'm not worried about that fear as long as I'm working for peace because that fear is within the individuals, within, and look at what happened in Rwanda. Million people died because of ignorance and uh, incitement and 
We don't want that to happen here. We want to pave the way for peace, for reconciliation, so that this peace, this fear can be transformed into hope. I'm not afraid of you. You are not afraid of me. Both of us are working together in order to build hope for the future. And I see what you feel, I feel with you. At the same time, feel with me and understand where I come from. Because I do not represent myself. Palestine is not at quarrel here. When we are talking about Islam, we are talking about two billion people who believe in this. And so that's where we need to open Israel for Muslim immigrants to come in in order to build up these bridges between the Jewish faith and the Islamic faith and bring back, uh, bring back the spirit, the Abrahamic spirit of reconciliation. That's how I view the future. Okay, Yossi, so until peace breaks out and uh, an influx of Muslims come to Israel, we still do have this massive concrete barrier that goes through much of the country in order to cage the sleeping Palestinian tiger, uh, in one sense, as Mohammed said. How do Not you Palestinian, I said Islamic. Thank you, the sleeping Islamic tiger, thank you. How do you, Yossi, as somebody who lived through the Second Intifada, who lost people close to you, as did I, how do you view this separation barrier today? Yeah, it's very painful for me to have to shift the discourse now from the vision to the reality. But I live in, and we both live in this reality, and I, I look at the wall Every day, it's, I'm looking at it now. It's the view from my, my porch, my study. And on the one hand, I, I find that wall to be an almost unbearable scar on the landscape. And on the other hand, I find myself grateful for the lives that it saved. And I remember when that wall was being built, and it was the, the time of the Second Intifada, and I felt this is going to help keep my children safe, and I believe it did. Uh, I look forward, along with Muhammad, to the time when we'll have more bridges than walls. And I believe that it is our responsibility to start building those bridges, but it's premature to dismantle the walls. But remember, Yossi, that there was no wall between 67 and 2002, and when the wall was built. And yet, your fear for your children was not that much. And I don't see in the wall really real security in the sense that it is, uh, it is stopping any, anything. Why? Because look at Gaza. There are tunnels that, they, that can take a tank under it from one side to the other. So the same thing with the wall. If a terrorist want to plant a bomb somewhere, the wall will not stop him. So it is more psychological rather than physical. Your children can feel much more secure in peace than the wall in war. 
يعني when we, when the conflict continues the wall is not the barrier that will keep the children safe it is well, the peace that will keep the children safe yes yes i i i agree that ultimately that's right but you know my sense about what the wall achieved uh, is very much along the lines of what you just said which is that it's more psychological perhaps but i think that the message that the wall sent to uh, arafat and the palestinian leadership at that time was that we really we israelis are really serious about doing whatever we have to do to protect ourselves and this was the time when suicide bombers were blowing up seemingly on a daily basis uh, in our in our in our cities uh, on buses and restaurants and there was a feeling that we were losing our capacity to hold on to our public spaces and that was the beginning of a sense of of the the fear was and i remember feeling this very strongly was that israeli society is unraveling we can't protect ourselves in the most minimal way and that wall sent yes a psychological message but an essential psychological message to both sides that there's a price to pay for for that kind of assault and uh and i do look forward very much look forward to seeing um gateways open in the wall and bridges over the wall but again i think that uh we have a long way to go before we can really begin developing the kind of trust that you and i have developed the trust between our peoples and and who knows this better than you is we are we're very far from that point but um yosi let me tell you how i feel about this war because i feel that the extremists whether it is hamas or whoever is in that camp wanted that war the extremists won in having israel build that war because these extremists do not want me to speak to you do not want you, want you to fear me want me to fear you and this is the, this is the message this wall sends it is a victory for the extremists over the peace camp because it the wall is standing between the two peace camps in palestine and in israel and it is the extremists who forced the israeli government to build it and they wanted to send the message to the palestinians that you should not speak to the other and this is an enmity till judgment day when this uh, conflict will end by a war in which the muslims will win against jews and the jews will and the jew will hide behind the tree or a stone and the stone will speak and say come there is a jew behind me kill him so this nonsense that teaches enmity and hatred is carried on till judgment day and this is where we as wasatiya our voice is to be heard that this is not islam this is not judaism this is not uh, christianity this is not the abrahamic faith and in this sense we need to live today and to build peace today and to end 
this uh, extremism that allows us. And that's how what I, when I look at the wall, I see it as a victory for extremists because it stands there uh, as uh, an emblem, a model for separation between two camps that and two people who want peace. And unfortunately, we are succumbing for the extremist will that says there should be there shall be no peace with the other until judgment day. And so this is where we say no, this is not Islam, this is not the Quran, this is not what God says. God never said we should have this battle between Jews and Muslims in, uh, till, uh, on Judgment Day or today. And that's where we as Jews, we as Jews, we as Muslims, we as Christians, we should make this enmity behind us and open our eyes to what the extremists aim and the goal of the extremists and make them lose the battle. And the only way we can make them lose the battle is for this wall to come down. Thank you, both of you. I'm nothing but optimistic after listening to both of you for about an hour. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. And uh, thank you. Very generous. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for inviting us. And it was a pleasure. And Yossi, thank you. I hope uh, we uh, will have a cup of coffee and discuss more about our uh, differences and our, so that we can try to overcome them or try to find solutions for them. Well, Muhammad, it's always a delight to be with you. And I look very much forward to that cup of coffee. Thank you very much. Me too. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 